and Eliam and Ahithophel and Joab and Solomon and eventually the long line of descendants that will lead to Mary and the birth of Jesus. The effects of this night have many repercussions, multiple murders, suicides, civil wars, betrayals uh, take place as a result of this. Uh, and what's interesting about this story is it's one of the most well-known uh, stories of David's life and one of the most well-known stories of adultery in all of, of human history. And what's incredible is, is I think we're missing a lot of the details because we let the retellings from history get more of the attention than what Scripture tells us happened. See, one of the most uh, prominent and well-known retelling of the events of ba David and Bathsheba was made most famous by a green ogre named Shrek, right? The song Hallelujah that's... Uh, originally sung by Kale in that movie and on the album is done by Rufus Rainwright but made famous by Jeff Buckley and written originally by Leonard Cohen. There are books written about all of the different versions of this song, Hallelujah. Maybe more song versions of this song recorded by uh, top artists than any other. But it was, I heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care about music, do you? It's very hard, and I'm a very bad singer. <laughs> well, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you, the song lyrics read. Saw her bathing on the roof. The haunting lyrics and melody by all of the different various artists that recorded it draw our minds to this moment when Bathsheba is on her roof, bathing there with the immodest intent to tempt David to being attracted to her. Her husband off at war and she lonely, seeing the opportunity to attract both the, this great warrior king and the power and, and influence that would come with being his. So she gets on her roof and she bathes in a way that would seduce the lonely king. There's an article on Bible.org. It's called Caught in the Tempter's Trap. And it's an article that was, that was pulled from a, a preacher sermon that was written some years back. And it says this, Bathsheba is not guiltless either. She may not have purposely enticed David, but she was immodest and indiscreet. To disrobe and bathe in the open courtyard, she, he puts her in the courtyard, in full view of any number of rooftop patios in the neighborhood was asking for trouble. She could easily have bathed indoors. David found out who the beautiful bather was, sent for her, and the thought became the deed. There's no evidence that this was forcible rape. Bathsheba seems to have been a willing partner. Her husband was off to war and she was lonely. The glamour of being desired by the attractive king meant more to her than her commitment to her husband and her dedication to God. They probably cherished those moments together. May they even, maybe even assured themselves that it was a tender and beautiful experience. Most do. But in God's sight, it was hideous and ugly. Satan had baited his trap and they were now in his clutches. There's a problem with these versions of the story of David and Bathsheba. 
the problem is they don't in any way depict what the Bible says happened. They're completely historically and biblically inaccurate. And we're going to get into the text here in in a little bit, and I want to show you what I'm saying when I say that. But but before we do, the first problem is, and Dennis talked earlier about how Jerusalem would swell from 50 to 80,000 to 3 million in the festivals. That's in the centuries closer to Jesus. Here we are a thousand years before that, where this is a Jebusite town that David has just conquered with several hills that the village is built upon. And David builds the very first palace that's in this area, and there's just several thousand residents at this time, a much smaller Jerusalem. And while it still, even in those days, could swell to humongous numbers when when the people would gather for anointings or royal events or festivals or uh, the feast that would later come, none of those would compare to the things that would come after Solomon will later build the temple and the people would come to be in the presence of God. Uh, In David's Jerusalem, it is a smaller, older Jerusalem. We're talking 3,000 years ago. Uh, And here's uh, a little bit of what the city may have looked like. Uh, David would have had his large palace at the top of the hill looking down on all of the small houses below. But if you've ever seen a painting where Bathsheba is in a bathtub on the roof, you need to know that you're roughly 2,000 years away from the invention of bathtubs. So unlikely that she is the secret first person to ever have a bathtub. Secondly, the architecture that is required to support a bathtub on a roof does not exist in 1000 BC Jerusalem. Uh, The other thing that you need to know is that the indoor plumbing to take a bath in your home does not exist until sometime later towards the the Roman Empire or other areas in this region that would start to build aqueducts that would move water from from the mountains and the rivers to the places where people lived. And even then, you would mostly travel to the fountains in the streets to get the water that you needed for your, your home. And so, so much of our imagination of privacy and bathing uh, happening in in bathrooms within homes exists from our world and not David and Bathsheba's world. So we have to realize that that those practices are completely different. So she was not taking a nice soak on the rooftop trying to get David or anyone else's attention. The second thing we need to notice is actually in verse 4 of the passage we're going to get here a little bit. If you want to get there now, it's 2 Samuel chapter 11. It'll be up on the screen. But in verse 4 it says this, Then David sent messengers to get here. She came to him, and he slept with her. And then there's this little parenthetical. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Now, this is describing uh, a little bit late in the story for a reason that we'll get into later, that the reason that she was bathing in a way that he could see her was that she was practicing the ritual cleanliness practice that was given to the Israelites in the book of Leviticus. Her bathing in the public uh, bathing space was an act of obedience, not of seduction. In the ancient world, uh, bathing spaces often happened in semi-secluded, semi-public areas that were visible in open air in the public space. It was the responsibility of the viewer to divert your eyes and to respect modesty. 
And, and where you didn't respect their eyes, it's because the cultural value of, of same-sex nudity was such that it wasn't an issue. And if you think, well, that's just crazy, it's really not. Uh, if you've ever been in a restroom that doesn't have dividers and someone else is in there, you understand that it's your job to not make lots and lots of eye contact, right? We share that cultural value that this is a space where you find your own little spot on the wall and ignore the rest of the people in the room until you're washing hands, and then you kind of go, oh, you're here. That's the cultural norm. And in as much as we have those today, they had them then, although in greater ways because the necessity of bathing being a community practice. And not only was it communal, it's ritual. And so it is a religious thing. And so the law required that, that Bathsheba or any other woman, seven days after uh, her period was over, would go down to uh, this area and she would wash herself in the ritual waters and become purified and she would go home. And this was also a way to signify to one's spouse or husband, I'm seven days after and this is a season that if we're trying to have a kid, um, we should be together. And if we're not, we should be apart. Amen. Beautiful, beautiful. And it's this purification practice that she's participating in. And David is on the rooftop, and she is not. And she's not in the courtyard, and she's not parading herself in an immodest way. She is practicing an act of obedience and purification that God has given to her. Uh, those areas happened in, in public bathing places uh, called mitzvahs. There's one up on the screen a second ago. Um, and, and they still have these mitzvahs. You can go see them in places where they have the archaeological remains of, in Israel today where they had these bathing spaces. And they're semi-public, semi-private places where the ritual cleansings of the people of Israel were done. And if you're kind of weirded out by the whole idea of that happening, of, of like why after uh, a period would that need to happen, why would that... One of the general rules, if you read through Leviticus and you just see all these rules about what causes you to need to be purified, there's a whole section of them that has to do uh, with the cleanliness that is required when parts that are inside of your body are now outside of your body or things that are supposed to be outside of your body come inside to your body. When that kind of inner outer boundary is penetrated in some way, so blood, spit, um, any kind of bodily fluids that is touched by someone, you become ritually unclean. Uh, we understand this today as good sanitation. They did it as part of not only good sanitation and health that they knew about thousands of years before most other civilizations do because God gave it to them, in addition to that, it reminds them to be clean before the Lord and to be holy, to be sacred, to view their bodies as something that wasn't to be cavalier or casual about. What Bathsheba is doing is restoring the purity of her body in her marriage and in her relationship with God and in her place in the community. And so when we get to this story... Uh, what I really want you to do is to check so many of your historical assumptions at the door. Because it wasn't her seduction in the moonlight that overthrew him. Okay, It wasn't her thinking, I would love a romantic night with this, this great king. She's doing what God told her to do. And David, from his palace, 
sees her and does what he ought not to have done. So now we're going to get into the text, and I want you to see how this plays out. And I want you to see who Scripture is disappointed in and who Scripture is disgusted by and who David himself will become offended by as this story progresses. So in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So keep in mind, this is the time of year where who goes out to war? Kings. What's David do? He stays home. He's taking some time off. Joab, you take the army and the king's men, which are two groups. The army is controlled by Joab. The mighty men have their own worries within them. We talked about the mighty men and the friends of David last week. One of them was Eliam. His son-in-law was Uriah. And they're off fighting David's battle while David stays at home. We'll see what he's doing here. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. Here we go. He's supposed to be at war, but he didn't. Is it because he had a lot of really important kingly duties to tend to back in Jerusalem? It doesn't look like it because it's evening and he's getting out of bed. If you're being a really good leader of your nation, you're at the battle. But if you've got stuff to do at home, that's understandable. But if you're getting out of bed in the evening, you're just taking it easy. You're not handling any of your responsibilities. So in the evening, he gets up from his bed and he walks around on the roof of the palace. David is on the roof. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. Last week we talked about David's friends, his mighty men, his warriors who would do anything from him and spent their lives removing any obstacle from his reign and his rule and did anything they could to protect his life and his his power and influence. One of them, the last of them mentioned, is a fellow named Uriah the Hittite, who is married to Bathsheba. Another one of them is Bathsheba's father, Eliam. Uh, Eliam's father, we're told in in some places, is a guy named Ahithophel. And it's probably the same Ahithophel, most scholars think, that is one of the great advisors and counselors in David's court, Bathsheba's grandpa. You see, he doesn't know Bathsheba. He's not met her before. He doesn't see her from the roof and say, I know that that's Bathsheba. He says, I don't know that woman, but I'm interested in in being with her. Can you go find out who she is? And the messenger comes back and says, "I I know who she is. She's the wife of one of your mighty men and the daughter of one of your mighty men and the granddaughter of one of your advisors. Huh. David says, bring her to me. Bring her to me. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness, and then she went back home. 
And the woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Now, did he know this was a risk? Yeah. He just saw her doing the thing that in their community was representative of that stage in, in her life. And he took her and slept with her knowing that he wasn't at any risk, that his life might not be at stake. But if she were to become pregnant and Uriah was to come home from battle and he would say, How, when did you get pregnant? And he's pretty good at math. He counts up the weeks that he's been gone and how far along she is, and he knows that she's committed adultery and that she could be punished by death. But David's not worried about that. He's not worried about Uriah. He's not worried about Eliam. He's not worried about Bathsheba. So David sent his word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. This is where the cover-up begins because no good scandal in government is complete without a really good cover-up. So David sends his word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. He poses as if he just wants an update on the war that he doesn't care enough to go to. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace. And the gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and he did not go to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. He thinks this is good news to David. David says this is bad news. My cover-up plan is getting really messed up by this guy's integrity. This guy's loyalty is getting in the way of my disloyalty. So... Uh, David said to him, stay here one more day. Tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. David's new plan is to get him to lower his inhibitions enough that he'll make a mistake in his own values that will cover up David's. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. Dennis earlier talked about how sometimes you're reading a story that you've read many, many times, and all of a sudden you latch onto this one detail that just jumps out at you like you've never had it. This was my verse in this story. David writes a letter to Joab. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. He writes it. And he seals it. And then he hands it to Uriah. And he says, I need you to take this to Joab. And Uriah says, as you command, I will not falter to achieve. And so Uriah is carrying this letter from David to Joab that says, kill Uriah by the sword of our enemies. And David doesn't hesitate to do it, it seems. 
David is, is faithful that Uriah will be loyal to him and not open the letter that he's been asked to carry. David is confident that when Joab is given the letter and Uriah is standing there, that when Joab opens it and it says, kill Uriah, and he looks up at Uriah, that he'll say, thank you for the message, you're dismissed. And that he'll then execute it without saying, whoa, did you read this? Did you mean to give this to me? Take a look at this. David's not worried about the loyalty of his men. He trusts that his army and that his mighty men are going to do everything he asks them without flinching. He is confident of his power over them. He's confident that his power is going to allow him to get everything that he's already taken that didn't belong to him and wasn't his business. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, son of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob-Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Some of his army and mighty men are casualties of this battle. If he asks you this, then say to him, Oh, also, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. The archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. Press the attack. Uh, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. She mourned for him. She's not celebrating. She doesn't think she's getting a promotion. She's not going, yes, upgrade. She mourned him. After the time of mourning was over, David had brought her, had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David done had displeased the Lord. The thing David had done. There's so many times we've told this story wrong. We've told this story uh, as if it was about the power of temptation. That when something exists that is so tempting to me that I just can't resist it and that I have to have it, that the power of that temptation is just so much that so often I become the victim of giving in to that temptation. That Bathsheba was so alluring and seductive to David as she was bathing on the roof that he couldn't help but give in to her seduction and to her attractiveness. Poor David. This story is not about the power of temptation. This story is about the temptation of power. 
This story is about people who are so convinced that they are above the law or that they have enough power over somebody else that they can take what they want regardless of whether or not you think it's yours or not. The the temptation uh, of power is to believe that you can do what you want if it meets your pleasure regardless of who gets hurt in the process. That's the, the, the temptation that comes with power. And that's what the story is. And here's how you know it, because here's the story that Nathan comes to tell David to rebuke him. The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him, this sheep. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. He took it. And he ate it. The story that Nathan gives is horrifying in its own right. And David immediately recognizes it as such. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. He thought because he's rich, he could just take and eat and devour and destroy, that he could do that just because he could get away with it, that no one would hold him accountable? David says, well, guess what? Today, that man who gave in to the temptation of power is going to be told that his power is limited. I'll kill him. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if this had been too little, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This isn't a courtship story. It's a taking story. This isn't a story Uh, of the power of temptation to pull us out of doing what we know is right. It's about the temptation of power to let us think that we can get away with it. It's about the temptation of power to think that, that we who have more can take advantage of those who have less. Can we? You know what? A lot of times, even in our world, we can. We can, and people do. The confrontation is a horrifying story. If we didn't have the whole story of David and Bathsheba and all we had was Nathan's story, this parable of a rich man who took a sheep from a poor man and and for no good reason ate the sheep that this man slept with 
and ate with and raised his children with, the pet of this family. It's horrifying. The implications are that this sheep Bathsheba is the complete victim of the rich man's power and selfishness. Um, If Nathan's story existed on its own, can you imagine anyone reading Nathan's parable and saying, yeah, but I bet that guy's sheep looked better and tastier than all of the rich guys. No one would do that. No one would read the story of Nathan's parable and say, shame on that sheep. You wouldn't do that. Now, we do that with Bathsheba. And I don't think there's anything in the text of this story that lends us to that reading of what David has done. David took, Nathan says. Nathan struck down by the enemy's sword. David has done violence. He has given in completely to the temptation of power in small ways at first. You go to war, I'll stay home. I'm going to sleep in today. I'm going to be lazy. I'm not going to be diligent and do what God's called me to do. I'm going to look on the palace at places I shouldn't be looking. I'm going to take that which isn't mine, regardless of who I know that's going to be hurt by it. And these are people I know that are going to be hurt by it. And when it gets found out, I'm not going to own up and confess. I'm going to try and cover it up. I'm going to do all of this until Nathan shows me that, that God sees it. And when God sees it, Nathan for the first, or David for the first time really sees the horror of what he's done. Because the temptation of power has blinded him so much to his evil that it's not until Nathan puts a mirror in front of him that he sees the horror of his own face and goes, Oh no, what have I done? Out of this, so many things come to pass. Uh, In the aftermath of this, Ahithophel is eventually going to, uh, and this is the grandfather of Bathsheba, is eventually going to drive uh, one of David's sons to form a rebellion against him. You think there's a connection there? Joab, who's the man who gets the letter about Uriah, might suddenly start to question the loyalty of the king who is this loyal to his mighty men. Joab will eventually side with not David's son Solomon, the child of the affair that led to Uriah's death, but he's going to side with a different son and what's going to lead to even more civil war. The sword will never leave David's house as a result of this action, not just become of some pronouncement of God, but because the consequence of giving in to the temptation of power is that it will always come back on you. Your power is an illusion in the eternal scheme of what God's doing. God's power is real. Yours is temporary. And if you use your power, if you use your influence, if you use any amount of your excess of resources to bless yourself at the cost of others, then my friend Nathan has a story you need to read. And if you get mad about that story while you're taking advantage of other people, then you need to realize that you're not that different from David on the darkest of his days who gave in to the temptation of power. Two other incredible things come out of this. It's a dark and depressing story, and I don't mean here at the end to just cheer you up because I kind of want us to realize that David got into the pit because of his disloyalty to to his men and to to Bathsheba and to God and all of this. But in the midst of the worst day of your life, God can still be up to something. 
Because in the midst of David's darkest hour, one of the things he does is he writes a psalm that begins with, Create in me a clean heart, O God. A psalm that for thousands of years has become songs that have been re-sung and re-sung by people who have used the words of his song in that moment that he heard that he was the man to call himself back to repentance in God. David's words of repentance in the aftermath of his uh, adultery and murder have been a guide for people to come back to God for thousands of years. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Some years later, about a thousand years after this, Matthew is going to be writing his gospel and he's going to be talking about all the people that are grandparents and grandmothers of Jesus. Four grandmothers make the list. Three of them are named specifically. One of them is not. One of them is named the wife of Uriah. And it's as if Matthew, who knew Bathsheba's name, he's got access to all of the Old Testament. He knows the stories by heart. And he chooses, instead of calling her Bathsheba, to call her the wife of Uriah. He's not going to let the horror of Nathan's parable and the description of what David did pass out of the lineage of Jesus Christ. He says that David and the wife of Uriah had a child named Solomon, and through this child would come Jesus. And it's this little reminder that this story that is horrible, it's horrible, there's no denying it. It's an absolute mess. But God has been working through all of humanity's messes, generation after generation, to come to the one who would come into the mess in Jesus of Nazareth. And he gets born into the mess to make it all right, to clean it all up, to restore all the brokenness. Out of the mess, Jesus comes into the mess so that he can get us out of the mess. And so in the midst of this incredible story about David's darkness, God's already bringing the light. God's already bringing the light. In our lives today, we still wrestle with the temptations of power. And the best way to resist them is to walk in the light. To walk in the light. If you need to respond this morning, please do so as we stand and sing.